This morning we are transitioning into this second letter that Peter wrote the church, the second letter that we have a copy of that God designed for his scriptures to us. Peter, it appears, is again in this letter writing from Rome. Once again, his audience is the church. He's not writing to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. It is possible that it's the same group of churches that he's writing to in the second letter that he wrote to in the first letter. We don't know that for certain. He mentions having written to these churches before, but it's possible that could be a letter we don't have a copy of. But it's very likely that it is churches in that general area, modern-day Turkey, and they would have primarily been made up of Gentiles, Gentile believers, those who are not Jewish. Probably don't remember this from 20 weeks ago. Hopefully it it is something that you made note of, but we think that these letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, were written in a five-year window from around 63 A.D. to 68 A.D. 63 A.D. would be about 33 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 68 A.D. is when Emperor Nero, his vicious reign over the Roman Empire, ended with his death. Church history tells us that both Peter and Paul were executed, martyred, during Emperor Nero's reign. And so, however many years or months separate Peter's first letter to the church with his second, what we do know is that the second letter has brought him closer to his martyrdom. As a matter of fact, he says in the letter he believes that time is near. Imagine Peter writing to the church and in his prayer saying, all I have is Christ. Why am I about to die? Because Jesus is my life. I think it's interesting that we only get a few glimpses of Peter's ministry over the three decades that he served as a pastor, as an apostle. We get some glimpses in Acts, but the majority of his teachings we have right here at the end of his life. We remember Peter from the Gospels, the beginning of his time with Jesus, an uneducated fisherman who was stubborn, headstrong, often acted or reacted without thinking. If that describes you, there is hope. He struggled with pride. He was slow at times to submit to what Jesus asked of him or what Jesus said. But then you get to these letters that he's writing at the very end of his life, and it is clear that he has grown into a man of great humility, that he is thoughtful, he is knowledgeable. He has obviously been trained and tempered, not by man, not by a seminary, but by the Holy Spirit. And he is seeking to do to the very end of his life exactly what Jesus told him to do. If you love me, Peter, show me you love me by taking care of my sheep. And to the end of his life, that's what Peter had set his course to do.
All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. So we obviously believe all of the Bible is equally true. All of the Bible is equally authoritative. But doubtless is the fact that a man writing at the end of his life to a people that he had been charged to care for will focus on the things that he is most concerned over. And doubtless would be the weight that his martyrdom would put behind his words to the church who read them. For some of these churches, Peter may have already died by the time they got this letter and read it. But Peter says in this letter that he believes after his death that his instructions to the church will remain. And indeed, God fulfilled that. He saved these instructions in the canon of Scripture, as well as Peter's eyewitness testimony to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which he gave to his associate Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, based on Peter's testimony. And so even now, today, 2,000 years later, we, the church, are still being impacted and stirred by what God inspired Peter to write. He is teaching us the way he taught these churches in his day. So what are we going to see in this second letter? What is Peter going to address in this second letter? There are, if you're a note taker and you have one of the handouts with the outline, there are three major themes or three major headings in this second letter. So we're not going to cover all the details, but if you broke the letter down, three major themes. The first one is Peter urging the church, urges the church to live fruitful, holy lives in order to prove the reality of their election. He urges the church to live fruitful, holy lives. They're going to continue on. He is not. And he doesn't know how long they will have. He just knows his time is near. And he urges the church, prove the reality of your election by living fruitful, holy lives. He says that in chapter 1, verse 10. Be diligent to confirm your calling and your election. Remember in the first letter he called Christians the elect chosen by God. And here he says, do your best to be fruitful in everything, giving glory to God. Do your best to be holy in everything. Separate yourself from sin and dedicate yourself to the glory of God. Not so you will be saved, but to prove that you are saved. To confirm to yourself and to confirm to others that you are indeed one of the elect. This is a far cry from seeing salvation as a liberty to sin and live how you want. But rather, Peter says, let your salvation lead you to fruitful holy lives. Secondly, second theme, we're going to see Peter warn the church about false teachers that will deceive them and unsettle their faith. A large section of this letter is Peter warning the church about false teachers that will deceive them and unsettle their faith. If Peter's first letter focused on the dangers from outside the church in persecution, his second letter focuses on the danger of deception from within the church. Far more focus in this letter on the danger of being deceived by false prophets, false teachers, false gospels, false ways of thinking. And then finally, Peter reassures the church. 
He reassures the church that Jesus will indeed return just as God has promised. If you've ever wondered, is Jesus really going to come back for his church? There were people even in Peter's day, in the early days of the church, three decades after the ascension of Christ to the Father, who were being unsettled in their faith and wondering, is he really going to come? And Peter says there are scoffers even in that day who were saying, where's this promised coming you keep talking about? And they would look at Christians and say, you're fools. Everything is just going the way it always has from the beginning of creation. And Peter is going to tell the church, it may seem as if God has delayed the return of Christ, but that delay is only to show his patience in giving people time to repent. Every day of delay is another day for people to come into the kingdom of Christ. But Peter says the end will come, and when it does, all things are final, including the decisions of people. And he reassures the church that the return of Christ is going to happen, and he bases it on the character of God who keeps his promises and has said that Jesus will return. And he he says that his point in reassuring us of the return of Christ is not just to tell us when it's going to happen, but rather tell us what kind of people we should be since Jesus is coming back. Charles Spurgeon, when he taught on Second Peter, he said, the motive for holiness becomes stronger in your life If the thought is not merely you're going to die one day, but the understanding that everything around you is going to be dissolved, nothing will remain. That makes us look upon eternal things with a more fixed eye and a more stern resolve to live for God. So I'm excited. I'm excited about diving into this second letter with you and continuing on in what Peter has taught the church. So we begin today. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses one more time. We're only going to deal with part of verse 3 and 4 today. And then next week, we're going to address verses 3 through 7 a little more fully. Simon Peter, that's the Hebrew spelling of his name, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Let's start with this life truth in your handout. The church throughout time has wrestled with difficulties from without and from within. Our troubles, as varied as they may be, All have the same root problem, and all have one sole solution. Throughout time, the church has wrestled with difficulties. Here's the reality. You and I are keenly aware of our troubles. We are keenly aware of the problems we have in our life. We are keenly aware of the problems we have in our time. We're not as keenly aware of other people's difficulties. Sometimes that even causes relational problems in the church because we get focused on what's going on with us and we tend to think that no one else is struggling. But at the same time, 
We also have the tendency to think that we, in our day of 2021, or this lifetime that we have, that in our years, things are far more difficult than they ever have been. That if we could just return to some point in time in history, things would be a lot better. And the reality is, the world has not changed. The troubles that people have faced have changed. Those troubles have varied, but every Christian since Jesus has wrestled with trials and problems. They have involved persecutions from outside the church, and they have involved disunity and false teachers from within the church. And the root problem, the root problem of those issues in your handout is the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Every difficulty has the same root problem. Every time period faced with trials has the same root problem. The corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Look at verse 4. Peter has just said that we are partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That word corruption in verse 4, it means decay. It means ruin. Everything around us is in ruin in some form. Everything around us is in decay. The greatest place you can find on earth, the greatest situation, the greatest gifts, the greatest created things that you enjoy are in a state of decay and ruin. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, in verse 21. He says that creation is in bondage to corruption. That it is being jailed, or if you will, you imagine creation with a ball and chain wrapped around its legs. It is in bondage. It is jailed to corruption. So what does this mean? It certainly means all around us is going to be moral corruption. Things things are in states of disrepair because systems have been developed by people and people are morally corrupt. They're in a state of decay and ruin. And everything we see is perishable. Everything we see is wasting away. And sin or as Peter calls it, sinful desire is the cause. We've talked about that word desire before, the way it's used in the New Testament here. It means irregular desires. Desires that are not commanded or from God. It actually can mean violent desires. We have within us these desires that come from the corruption of our flesh, And so does everyone around us. Moral corruption. That is the root problem of everything we face. Some of the effects of that are direct. We see evil in the world. We see evil people doing evil things because of this moral corruption. We see people doing evil. We see hatred. We see hurt, pain that we cause one another. But there's also indirect effects of this. 
creation is in bondage. So again, even, even the most beautiful created thing somehow is dealing with bondage to corruption, which means that even people and systems that have good intentions are somehow really, really flawed. Nothing is perfect. We are marred by foolishness even when we're trying to do good. And the world is filled with people who may think they're trying to do the right thing, but they are living foolish lives. They are unwise, even though they think they are full of wisdom. And it is because of the corruption that has been caused. So what's the answer? There's one sole solution. There's only one. It's so important for us to hear this. There is one solution. And it is escaping the corruption by way of the righteousness of Jesus. That's it. The only hope creation has, the only hope any of us has, is to escape the corruption by the way of the righteousness of God. There is no other solution. There is no person who is going to fix this other than Christ. There is no system, there is no ideology, there is nothing that man can do that will fix it. Nothing. The sole solution is what Peter says in verse 4, to escape the corruption in the world. And we do so by the righteousness of Jesus that he mentions in verse 1. Peter says here, true Christians have escaped the corruption. That's what he says. Verse 3, you have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped. You have escaped, you are still escaping. What does that mean? Because the ruin is still there. It's still around us. We haven't went anywhere. It hasn't went anywhere. It's all around us. Furthermore, we still wrestle with sin ourselves. Our bodies still decay. So how does the Bible say we've escaped the corruption? Escaped means to be freed from. We're freed from it. Going back to Paul in Romans 8, when he says that the creation is in bondage, people are in bondage to this corruption, he goes on to say that creation, including all the creatures, are waiting with eager longing to be set free. And that freedom comes when they obtain the glory of being a child of God. What sets us free? when we receive the glory that is being a child of God, when we become a partaker of the divine nature. Easy for me to say. So what is the opposite of being in bondage to corruption? What's the opposite of that? You're either in bondage to corruption or you are someone who is sharing in the glory of God as his children. You are someone who has become a partaker of the divine nature. In other words... It is first and foremost spiritual freedom. It's not first and foremost physical freedom or God would have taken us from the earth. We're still here. One day we will see Him. One day a new creation will descend and we will live in that freedom in totality. But for now, it is first and foremost a spiritual freedom. We don't leave the world, we don't leave its chaos, but the moral corruption no longer enslaves us. We're no longer in bondage to it. Our lives are no longer marked by foolishness. We still feel the sting of the corruption that is all around us, 
We sometimes still still feel the sting of the corruption in us, but it doesn't mark our lives. So how does that happen? How do we receive that spiritual freedom? How do we escape? How are we set free where we're not in bondage anymore to the moral corruption all around us? And the answer is only by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 1. Righteousness that is mentioned there in verse 1. That righteousness, here and elsewhere in the New Testament, refers to the act of God putting sinners in a right relationship with Himself. We have obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the act of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, putting us in a right relationship with Himself. We escape the corruption of the world through justification. That big word that means we've been declared not guilty of our sin. And when we're declared not guilty of our sin, we're released from the corruption of the world. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5, in a verse that maybe you're familiar with, beautiful passage that we should try to memorize if we don't have it memorized. Verse 21, Paul puts the message of the gospel, the good news, this way, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the justified ones. That we might become the innocent ones. That we might become the ones freed from corruption. We escape the corruption that is in the world, not by our own work, not by our own plans, but by God's. Because on the cross... Jesus was clothed with our corruption. And because of His resurrection, we are clothed in His righteousness, as we sang about this morning. We are clothed in His right standing with God. We are put in the same position as Christ before God. Let it sink in. When you've been released from the corruption of the world, when God the Father looks at you, it is as if He's looking at Christ. His innocence, His guiltlessness, His perfection all applied to you. That's what it means to escape the corruption of the world. Sin doesn't have a pull on you. Not in such a way that you can't escape. There's always a way to escape for the children of God. How does this get applied to our lives, though? And Peter says in verse 1, it comes by faith. Faith is the act of believing. It is the act of believing everything I just said. That on the cross, Christ was clothed with our corruption so that we might be clothed with His righteousness. In your handout, Christians receive faith being put into a right standing with God by God. 
Christians receive faith being put into a right standing with God by God. Maybe you find that language a little odd. We receive faith. Here's the reality. Most of the time, we normally think of faith as something we have, which certainly it is. We exercise faith. Faith is an act of our will where we exercise our will to believe in Christ and what He has done. Here's the question. Where does that faith in you come from? Did you develop it? Did you create it? Did you find it? Did you birth it? Peter says it's obtained. So look again in verse 1. I'm writing to those who have obtained a faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. That word obtained in the Greek means received. It carries with it the idea of something being given to you or appointed to you. As a matter of fact, if you look in the NIV, the NLT, the NASB, or the CSB versions of the Bible, they all have the word received in them because that's what the word means in the Greek. Christians escape corruption spiritually by the act of believing in what God has done for us. That He has taken off our clothes of corruption and clothed us with righteousness, being made right with God. But Peter says that even that act of believing is a gift to us. Yes, it's an exercise of our will. It is something that we work out. It's like a muscle. It grows in us. We can be people of great faith or little faith. But the origin of the faith that is in you, if you do indeed believe, is not yourself. Peter says, you have received it. It has been distributed to you as a gift from God. And not just from God, but Peter says it's a gift from Jesus, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the somewhat few but clearest claims of the divinity of Jesus by New Testament authors. It's all throughout the Bible in terms of Jesus and how he applied it to himself, but this is one of the clearest where Jesus is called God, equal to the Father. We have escaped the corruption by becoming partakers in the divine nature. You're free. And you've obtained that freedom by being found as a child of God. That is the sole solution to the difficulties in the world. There is no other way for you. There is no other way for anyone else. You see a world of corruption. You saw it before you got here today. You'll see it when you leave. It'll be on your phone. It'll be in the news. It'll be all around you this week. You will feel the sting of that corruption every day. But what the Word calls out to us is that the only hope for this world of corruption is for the kingdom of God to advance. Church, if you want to give your energy to something, if you want to give your time to making the world a better place, put your energies in advancing the message of Christ because that's the only way. It's the only way. Every other solution is merely temporary. And every other solution is ultimately going to fail. And knowing that faith is a gift, it's appropriate for you to cry out for it. It's appropriate for you to ask 
for faith. It's appropriate if you're hearing this for the first time and you've never believed in Christ. It's appropriate for you to call out and ask Him to give you faith to believe in Christ. And it's appropriate for you to pray that people in the world would receive the gift of faith. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, to hope that his opponents in this life, that God would grant them or give them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. He didn't say, hope that your opponents will repent. He said, hope God will grant them repentance. It's appropriate for you to pray for faith and pray for the faith of the people in this world who are corrupt. Two pleas I want to make to us today from this gospel message. Two pleas that I want to make to us based on this opening text. The first plea is this. Notice in verse 1, when Peter says, to those who have obtained a faith, he says, a faith of equal standing with ours. What does he mean by that? Equal standing, you can think of it positionally, but it also can mean equally precious, equally privileged. As a matter of fact, if you read it in the King James Version, the King James Version says, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. So in your notes, this faith that we're talking about, this act of believing, is a precious privilege that must supersede any division or distinctions made by man. This faith is a precious privilege that must supersede any division or distinctions made by man. All right, so if we understand faith as a gift that leads to right standing with God, then our faith is a privilege. Do you see how important this is to the gospel? If you believe that you've been saved by faith that you conjured up, then the end of the faith is precious because of what you get from it. But if you understand that faith is a very gift from God, then even the means by which you receive salvation becomes precious to you. You don't take it for granted. It is a precious thing to be granted the gift of belief. And so Peter says to those he's writing to, you have received a faith of equal standing with ours. This faith is a privilege and it is shared equally among all the believers. This is the common denominator among those who believe. We've all got the same beautiful, precious privilege. Why does Peter say you're on equal standing or you have a faith equal to ours? He is likely thinking about the Gentiles. There was a racial divide in that day between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And there was a great controversy in the church because all the Jewish Christians couldn't decide what to require the Gentiles to do in order to be a part of the faith in the church. And Peter was at the center of that because Peter was given a vision by God not to exclude the Gentiles and not to add anything to their faith, to not tell them they were required to do anything except believe. 
God actually used Peter to bring the first Gentile convert to the faith. So how do we apply this? Well, certainly it means there should be no racial divides in the church. Absolutely. But I think it goes further than that. I think it says there should be no man-made division in the church. There should be no man-made distinction in the church. You and I should primarily relate to everyone in the church one way. Faith in Jesus. There should be no group that we put each other into in this body of believers. We are all of equal faith. We are all of equal privilege. Here's our tendency. Our tendency is to want to connect with people in the church on the basis of similar interest in the world. We church shop for that. We in, in the church have developed programs to try and bridge or build community based on similar interest. And what we do is we hope that those connections of similar interest will help us love Jesus together. Because if I can connect with people who are like me and have similar interests to me, then that will help us bond so then we can love Jesus together. The gospel flips it. It's the total opposite. We come into this place in this community for one reason. We sit across from each other as believers in Christ. That's what bonds us together. We worship the same Christ. We have equal faith. And then we can hope that that equal faith in Christ actually helps us build relationships. Fifteen or so years ago, I had an opportunity to bond with one of the leaders of our church here. And I found myself participating in 5 a.m. workouts, going to Jeff State and running two miles at 5 a.m. Now, if you know me, I only see 5 a.m. one way because I hadn't went to bed yet. What in the world would cause me to get up at 5 a.m., which most of the time I don't even know exists, to go run? It is because the guy who invited me to do it was a believer and I wanted to spend time with him and I wanted to learn from him and I wanted to bond with him about Jesus. And so he asked me to go work out with him at 5 a.m. And I said, yes, not because I wanted a relationship with him as much as because I wanted to learn about Jesus from him. When someone tells me, I just don't feel like I fit in. In 18 years of agape, I've, I've heard that many times. I just don't feel like I have a place. I just don't feel like I fit in. And everything in me wants to figure out how to make them feel connected and how to find people in the church that they can relate to. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I hope that there are people in the church that you can relate to and that you make friendships with based on similar interests. But... When I'm told that someone doesn't feel like they fit in, my first question is, are you engaging with anyone in the church over the Bible? 
Are you getting together with people in the church and talking about God's word and praying together and equipping each other for mission? Because if you're doing that church, it is going to be really hard to feel disconnected. We often feel disconnected, and this is not true all the way across the board. We are humans. We do sin against each other. Those things happen. We offend each other. I know that. But it's really hard to feel disconnected if our primary focus is loving Jesus together and getting together to study Jesus and learn His Word together and pray together. And if we're in the church looking for people who might be on the fringe and inviting them to come in to learn about Christ with us. It's a precious privilege. Do you count your faith as precious? You have a lot of precious things in your life. You have a lot of things that you consider to be precious. You would die for it. Do you count your faith as precious? How would you know? Thought about this this week because I don't want to do the preacher trick of saying, okay, how, what's the most precious thing in your life? Now compare that to how you view the gospel and try to weigh them out. I don't even know that you could do that. Here's what I would ask of you though. Does how you view the gift of the gospel frame everything else that you find precious? Or is all the other things that you find precious frame how you relate to the gospel. I find it precious to be a pastor. It is a divine privilege. I love it. I can't imagine doing anything else. I wish I could do it all the time. If I find that more precious than the gospel and being a servant, then what that means is I might not teach you the full counsel of God. Because I want to stay a pastor. I want to be well thought of. I don't want anyone to think low, lowly of me. So I might draw back from teaching the full counsel of God. Or I might draw back from how I preach or interact with people because I care about my position. But if I find the gospel and being a servant of Jesus the most precious thing in my life, then that will frame how I pastor. I will pastor to be faithful to God and to what he has said and to teach his word and to try to love people well because that's what he's commissioned me to do. How precious do you find the gospel? Ask yourself how the gospel frames and changes and influences everything else in your life. And then the other gospel call that I want to give us today, the other gospel plea the first one is, find your faith precious and invite other people in to join with you in that and let there be no divisions among us because we all find this gospel precious and we're living into that first and foremost. The second call, the second plea, this faith, this act of believing calls us, which I'm going to define here as both enables and demands of us. That's what I think a call is. God enables us and he also demands of us to grow in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. 
This faith calls us to grow in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the pathway to experiencing a life of abundant grace and peace. How do you have more grace? How do you have more life? Excuse me, how do you have more grace? How do you have more peace in your life? Peter says, grow. Grow in the knowledge of God. You see it in verse 2. He opens this letter with a prayer. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God or by the knowledge of God. So may grace and peace come to you, multiplying to you over and over, increasing in your life. How? In the knowledge of God. Flip over to how he ends the letter in chapter 3. Look at the very last two verses. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He opens the letter and he ends the letter with this plea, church, grow in your knowledge of God. Grow in knowing God Grow in knowing what God has commanded. Grow in knowing who God is. Church, grow in it. If you are not growing, you will ultimately find yourself shrinking back. There's no real neutral in the spiritual life. You will float away without really realizing it if you have not put your mind in your heart to growing. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a great preacher, said that the problem that confronts every Christian people in this world is ultimately the problem of unbelief. We find ourselves believing less. We may not even say that. I'm kind of doubting God's Word. It doesn't show up like that. It shows up. Unbelief shows up by shrinking away from obeying God's Word first. Unbelief is sneaky and it's gradual, and the enemy always takes advantage of weariness in our lives to draw us from our faith. How do we fight that? What is the antidote? It is growing in knowledge. Set your hearts to grow in knowledge. I said this last week. This is beautiful. This is a non-negotiable. We should gather for worship, but this is not enough. Growing in the knowledge of God involves your own pursuit of God in His Word and prayer, and it also grows, it also requires you being in a community of people that are discipling you. Let me end with that charge I believe you will hear me say this more in the days ahead. But church, every single one of us at Agape must be in some type of discipling community. We must be in a relational community with one another that is seeking to disciple one another. Every one of us needs to be involved in that. A Bible study or a small group, times of engaging with other people in the church over coffee to read the Word, we must have it. Some of those things as a church and as leaders will present to you. 
This coming Wednesday night, there'll be a Bible study here. Next Sunday night, there'll be a Bible study. There are small groups that are happening. But what I hope is that we don't program it all out. I want some of you to stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to put this together, this lunch, this gathering, this time in my area so that people at Agape have an opportunity to be in discipling community. I want us to grow in that because we all must have it. We must grow in the knowledge of God and we must do so together. Worship team, you can come up. John, you can bring the lights down. This morning, I want us to respond to this word. Those of you who have obtained a faith of equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, would you worship today your Lord? Would you sing praises to Him? Would you thank Him? Would you seek to grow in the knowledge that will multiply to you grace and peace. If you have never obtained that faith, if you've never received it, would you cry out for it today? Would you ask for God to save you by the righteousness of Jesus, by applying to your life the right standing of Christ? Would you ask Him to apply to your life the right standing of Christ in place of the corruption of your sinful nature? Would you do that today? If you're in this room, would you come and talk to me before you leave? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate with someone in baptism who has come to faith in Christ. Would you consider whether you've been baptized as a proclamation of this faith? If you're on replay, you can contact us over the website. This morning, if God has stirred something in your heart and you want to pray about it, you can do so up here. You can do so in your seats. And if you need a miracle, if you need God to intervene, when I ask you, when I say, do you need a miracle, I just mean if you need intervention from God, and you would like someone to pray for you, there are some prayer partners over here to my left, and they will pray for you about anything going on in your life where you need God to intervene. Father, I ask you this morning that you would cause all of us to obtain the faith that saves us. That you would grant us the righteousness of Jesus that you would release us from the bondage of corruption and grant to us to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Would you make us lights in our community to take that message as ambassadors of Jesus, as if you are making your plea through us to others to be reconciled to God, to believe We are the mechanism, we are the way, we are the plan in this world for people to come to know you. Would you create us to be a lighthouse in Pinson and beyond? That we would shine the light of your glory and your gospel and we would see people coming to that light. Thank you for the baptism today. Thank you for the one who's dedicating their life to you publicly. God, would you cause there to be more? And those of us who have obtained this faith, would you make us thankful for it that it is the most precious thing to us that there is? Would you give us unity in this church 
and break down every division because we share an equal faith. Would you give us love for you and love for each other? And would you help us to grow in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Help us to worship today. In your name we pray. Amen.